pray. Gracious one, we invite your spirit now to take your word that has been read and apply it to our hearts as only you can. May as we hear your word, your spirit empower us to be transformed by it, that we be more, may be more reflective of the Christ we serve and in whose name we pray, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Today is the second of the Sundays that we are hearing words from the 25th chapter of Matthew. This is a text where Jesus, as we started to reflect last week, where Jesus is endeavoring to describe for his disciples the kind of kingdom that he was coming to establish. And that's important because the kingdom that he was coming to establish was unlike the expectations of the disciples. They had expectations that the Messiah, of whom they had heard for generations, that this Messiah was going to be one who would restore the throne of Israel, that the Messiah would become king, that the Messiah would rule in the same kind of authority as David and with the splendor of Solomon, and that the kingdom established by this Messiah, this king, would be a kingdom unlike any other on the earth. It would surpass in glory all other kingdoms that they had known, and they, as his faithful followers, would have positions of authority in this earthly kingdom. Jesus had tried very hard to prepare the disciples for the fact that the kingdom he came to establish was not going to meet their expectations. It was not going to be at all like they expected, nor was he going to be the kind of king that they expected. Last week, we had uh, the lesson where Jesus is describing the kingdom, and he says the kingdom will be like this. And he tells the parable of the bridegroom and the ten bridesmaids, five wise and five foolish. And we talked about how that the kingdom of God... If Jesus says, this is like the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of heaven will be like this, it's going to be a messy place. There are inconsiderate bridegrooms, and there are selfish bridesmaids, and egotistical self-centered bridesmaids, and it's just a mess. So we in the church trying to become the kingdom of God, we're in, we've got a good head start. <laughs> Being messy is a part of the kingdom, and that's what Jesus came to establish. This isn't going to be a kingdom like any other. In fact, he would say, my kingdom is not even of this world. And he would describe the kingdom as a kingdom that is inside of us and not outside of us. But try as he might, the disciples never quite understood that this kingdom Jesus said he was coming to establish was not going to meet their expectations. They argued amongst themselves. There was even one point in, the, in the, the context of this 25th chapter of Matthew, Jesus has been telling them that he is going to die. And the disciples have been in some state of denial about this fact. If you remember in the 16th chapter, just a few chapters before, Peter, when he hears Jesus saying, I'm, I'm going to die and I'm going to be raised from the dead, Peter looks at him and says, this isn't going to happen to you. No way. You're the Messiah. 
You're the Christ. He just acknowledged, you're the Christ, the Son of the living God. But how did Jesus respond to that proclamation from Peter? Do you remember? Get behind me, Satan. You don't have in mind the things of God, but the things of men. So though he tried to describe the kingdom in a way that the disciples could grasp, they failed to grasp the kingdom. So here are these continual stories of what the kingdom will be like. And today, we have this story that is very familiar, the parable that is very familiar to us of the man. And he says, this, the kingdom of God is like this. The kingdom of heaven will be like this. A master gathers his slaves, his servants, and distributes to them his possessions. He's to go on a long journey. And while he is away, the servants are given responsibility to do something with what had been entrusted to them by their master. Now note, if you will, that servants, slaves, in Jesus' day were not like slaves. When we think of slaves in our American context, we think of our history and the, the cruelty and the, 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 that part of our history that we wish we could just brush away, but we can't. Slaves in Jesus' day, servants in Jesus' day, were very well cared for. And it's indicative of the confidence that the master in the parable has in his servants that he's willing to entrust them with all that is his. Servants were very well cared for. They were provided for very well. And so it's indication to us of just how trustworthy this master saw his servants. And he was generous with them. Now, to put this in further context, the Gospel of Matthew is written sometime toward the end of the first century. And the early church, if you remember, had the expectation. Jesus had been talking about he was going to go away, but if he went away, he was going to come back again. And those who followed Jesus fully expected that his return was going to be soon. And by this time, a number of years have passed. And there are those who are following Christ who are beginning to question themselves. Was Jesus really the one? Should we be looking for someone else since he's so delayed in returning? Maybe this is all just a hoax and we should be living for ourselves? So Matthew was trying to dissuade those who were doubting the divinity of Jesus, that Jesus was the Messiah, that this same Jesus is indeed going to come back, and we have responsibility while he is away. Thus the parable. In fact, this delaying of return is consistent with the parable that we heard last week, the bridegroom who delays, who is late, remember? Here is a master who takes his journey, and he's going to be gone for a long time. But he entrusts his possessions to his servants. Now, when we talk about talents, five talents and two talents and one talent, that doesn't really resonate with us. It's a, it, was a, it was a sum of money, but we can't put our heads around exactly what is that. When someone is given five talents and two talents and one talent, what is that? Well, a talent was a measure of weight. Usually, it was used to to weigh gold or silver, 
But if you go all the way back in the Old Testament, where David is passing off to his son Solomon the instructions for the building of the temple, he leaves him, gives him all of these materials, and that's weighed in talents. To put it into modern context, the talent that this master was giving, each talent was essentially enough for 20 years of wages for an ordinary worker. So this was no small sum that was being entrusted to these servants. Even the one who was given one talent was given enough for a reasonable lifetime of work in Jesus' day. The one with two, two lifetimes. The one with five, five lifetimes. So there was plenty. And Jesus continues the parable and he describes this master who's been long in his journey returns and those who had been entrusted with the talents are called to account. Notice, if you will, that in the distribution of the talents, the master didn't give the same to everyone. It wasn't equal across the board. How many of you are there? Let's divide this by that many, and each of you gets the same measure. That wasn't what the master did. The master knew each of his servants very well. And he was given, what was given to them was given, the scripture says, in accordance to their abilities. One five, one two, one three. One one, one one. I'm getting my numbers mixed up. But each of them had enough, and they were entrusted with this. When the account is given, the master returns. The two first who went out immediately and made put to work that which had been entrusted to them. The one with fives came back with five more. The one with two came back with two more. And the master rewarded them, commended them for their faithfulness. And notice that he didn't say, the one who returned five was more valuable to me than the one who returns two. He rewarded them equally because they were faithful with what had been entrusted to them. And the one who had been given one who went out and buried that one talent in the ground. Usually when we hear this story, we think of, well, that that servant just did absolutely nothing. He didn't understand what the master had asked him to do. He was an unfaithful steward. Well, the truth is that there was rabbinic law at the time that anyone who who would take a sum of money and bury it or hide it someplace that person would not be responsible if that money, that hidden money, was lost. So in a sense, this servant who was given the one talent was doing something that was very conservative. I'm going to protect this this money that the master has given to me, and so I'm going to do what rabbinic law says is, is acceptable, and I'm going to go and bury this so that when the master returns, I can give him back exactly what it was that he had entrusted to me. But the master was not pleased. The master was not pleased because the servant who had buried the talent had done so in fear. Here again his words. Master, I knew that you were a harsh man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you did not scatter. So I was afraid, 
and I went and hid the talents. I was afraid. Think with me again about who the master is. Is there anything in this, this master who has genuinely and generously cared for his servants, who had trusted them with enough money for a lifetime? Is there anything that says to you this very generous, caring master would be harsh? Someone to fear? The master is really critical of this wicked, lazy servant in large part because he had misunderstood the heart of the master. It's important for us as Christians, and we find it all through Christendom, There are people who look at God as a a fearful, vengeful, wrathful God. One that we shudder to think that this God might actually want to see us face to face one day. The lesson is that when we regard God out of fear, we are not truly seeing the God who created us from the midst of love and who shelters us in his love all the days of our lives and that same love to which we will return when our time on this earth has done. The master condemned this wicked servant for approaching his responsibility out of fear. I'm going to tell you a quick story. Believe it or not, I have not always been the brilliantly rational expert of all things spiritual that you've come to know me. (laughs) I was once naive enough to believe that if the Bible taught something, it was actually true. Can you believe that? And one of the things that I believed is that God is a God of love and God is a God of abundance. And as Jesus passed his mission on to his disciples in what we know as the Great Commission, all authority, he said, in heaven and earth has been given unto me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations. I'm passing my mission on to you. Much as the master gave what was his to his servants, Jesus has passed his mission on to those who would follow him. And so I believe that if there's a principle in Scripture that was true then, it's true now. I was pastoring a small congregation in Payson, Arizona, my first senior pastor position. And we had a a very small building on less than an acre of ground. The main church would hold maybe a hundred people if we packed everyone in. And the day I arrived there, there were 38 of us. So we were had quite comfortable in that space for 100 with 38 people. But after a few years and we grew, we packed out that space once, and so we added another service, and then we packed it out twice, and we began to talk together as pastor and people about, well, what is it that we might should do? And some of you have heard me tell this story before, but forgive me if you've, if you've heard it. But I knew, and the people knew, that our future needed to be somewhere other than this landlocked three-quarters of an acre piece of property. So we started looking. And we found that there was a 
piece of property right on the main highway, the Beeline Highway through Payson, Arizona. It was a five-acre piece. It had another five acres behind it that was available and another ten beyond that that we could purchase with a series of options. I thought, great. We started what we knew then as Project Exodus. You know, we're going to move from here to here like the children of Israel, from here to here, right? And so we, we, needed, we knew we needed to raise some money. It was going to be $40,000 an acre for the first five acres. So we needed $200,000 for that first five acres, and we had in the bank. <laughs> so there was a Sunday when we were, we were hearing this very parable from the 25th chapter of Matthew. And I did something that probably I could never, ever do again in a million years, but I had a church board that trusted me completely. And I had them agree for us to take $2,000 out of the bank. And on this particular Sunday, we did pass the plates. But instead of inviting people to put something in, we invited them to take something out. We had put this $2,000 in $10 bills, one envelope at a time, in these offering plates. I said, I want you to take one or more. But here's the thing. It's not yours. This isn't yours. This is being entrusted to you. And I want you to go and do something with it. And eight weeks from now, we're going to have a come back together and see what we've been able to produce from what has been given. And there were kids in the church who went out and bought soap, and they held a car wash, and there were people in the church who would buy uh, makings for baked goods, and they would have a bake sale, and people were just really creative about what they were going to do with this God's $10 bill, what had been entrusted to them. Eight weeks later, when it was time for all of it to come back, the offering that day, we raised on that single day $160,000. That $2,000 had become $160,000 in eight weeks because people did something with what had been entrusted to them. Now, I had our vestry members who were shuddering at the thoughts. <laughs> <clears throat> but the whole idea is to think about what is it that has been entrusted to me? And I believe with my whole heart, every breath that I breathe is a gift from God. And one day, anything that I think I'm going to have to give an account of to God, that's something that has been entrusted to me. And I can trust that this God who created me from, the heart, from a heart of love is a God who is not going to let me starve. God is going to provide everything that I need, maybe not all that I want, but everything that I need, and as I'm faithful, the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven that Jesus came to establish, that was passed on to all of us to build, that kingdom will become more of a reality. But it takes faithfulness. And I'm not just talking about money here. I'm talking about the way that we live our lives, what we do with our lives. 
What is this life going to count for that is a gift from God to me? What am I doing to give something back out of gratitude to the one who created me from love? I invite you to consider this day the kingdom of heaven and what it's going to look like. It's not going to be what we expect. But the one who has more in store for us than we can even imagine is one who will keep us as we were faithful to build the kingdom that he's called us to build. May we do so with faith and confidence in the love of God this day and always. Amen.